With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone. I'm Hilary Kerr, the co-founder and chief content officer of Who, What, Where, and this is Second Life a podcast spotlighting women who have truly inspiring careers. We're talking about their work journeys, what they've learned from the process of setting aside their doubts or fears, and what happens when they embark on their second life. Today on the show, I'm chatting with Dana Ward, the founder and president of the premium foot care company, Barefoot Scientist. Overseeing everything from branding and marketing to leading product development, Dana is inspiring people to treat their feet in the same specialized way that they care for their face, hair, and body. Her best-selling products like Preheels Plus, which is a blister prevention spray, and the Reboot Exfoliating Foot Peel, which is my personal favorite, are doing just that. Within a year of launching direct-to-consumer in 2019, Barefoot Scientist expanded into over 1,000 Ulta Beauty stores in 2,400 Rite Aid locations. Today, they've also landed in retailers like Anthropology and boutique spas, wellness centers, and podiatry offices. Clearly, Dana has found a massive market for her products, but just how did she dream up a new standard in foot care, you ask? Well, it was a personal need. During Dana's first life in the early days of digital media, she was on the founding team at Clever Media, where she was responsible for content strategy and production of the single most viewed entertainment news network on YouTube. She also led creative development and production for outside brands such as Adidas and Sony, and hosted segments for outlets such as NBC and E! Entertainment. It was those long hours on her feet spent working on red carpets in Hollywood that led her to conceptualizing her first product, the aforementioned Preheels Plus, and eventually a foot care empire. It's a fascinating story of an unexpected path, and I can't wait for you to hear it all from Dana herself. Now, on Second Life, it's Dana Ward. On this podcast, we like to start at the beginning. So what did you study in school? And much more importantly, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Well, I grew up watching the Today Show every morning while I was getting ready for school. And I thought, oh, I want to be one of the anchors on the Today Show, the ones that do the news and do the fun segments. <laughs> also, I really enjoyed the Oprah show. And being from Chicago, where Harpo Studios was located, I think I was kind of like set up to really like love that idea of interviewing a person and helping tell their story. So I thought I wanted to be something in that in that realm. And I knew that getting a journalism degree was kind of the first step to really make sure I did my homework, really understood how to tell a story, the ethics behind, you know, your sources, et cetera. So I moved to sunshiny Los Angeles to study journalism. I did my research and I found that USC's Annenberg School was very celebrated. And I thought I wanted to be an anchor on one of those shows. So I also went to USC, but I did not study journalism there. It was my minor, but we didn't take very many classes for it. But I remember some of my fellow sorority members going through it. And those classes, especially like the entry level classes, were incredibly rigorous. It was like as many facts as you could write down in a certain period of time. I mean, it was just this really competitive track. I mean, I don't think people realize like what level of... I mean, how rigorous that can be. But I also yeah. feel like that's probably a good place to, you know, sort of launch your career in so many ways, because those skills that you were learning, even in college, where I don't think you always find the most applicable to real life skills, mm -hmm. I feel like there's actual translatable skills that come out of that major. 
100%. And it's so funny you say that because one of the reasons I chose this journalism school is because I read that it was very practical. Some programs in college are very theoretical and you just study the history and what it's about. And yep. USC Annenberg was all about practical application. So we all had instructors who were actual journalists in the real world here in the Los Angeles market. So they were teaching us real life skills. We learned how to research, how to write, how to book interviews, how to conduct the interviews. If you were in a broadcast class, you learned how to do stand-ups, how to shoot. I was actually shooting these interviews myself, editing the stories, and then working for the live news program while we were there. It was wonderful. I did camera, assistant directed. I was the weekend anchor. I was a news anchor. And then you throw in all of the internships that the program really encourages you to do while you're in this big city and you have so many opportunities. So I worked for a long lead print magazine. I worked for an investigative network show. I just kind of tried to get my feet into everything I could do and really took away like, oh, I like this or I don't like this. But every single opportunity I had, I really tried to learn something to take away to that next job or whatever the dream job was going to be. Just make sure that I was learning and, you know, applying that for a future job. That is very mature of you. I think I was more interested in Pint Night at the Nino, and that's my own issue. So, Well, listen, I participated <laughs> in all of the things, too. College is about, like... A breadth of experience. Yes, your first time away from home. Experience everything. <laughs> okay, so speaking of experiences, you had an interesting experience pretty early in your career working for a company called Event Credentials as a media coordinator. So I read that that meant you were coordinating with media outlets for like yeah. behind the scene coverage at yeah. large scale, high security events like the Golden Globes and yes. the Super Bowl and Sundance and so many crazy things. So that sounds on the surface rather dreamy and exciting. I'm sure it was not quite as picture perfect as I'm envisioning it, but I'm curious <laughs> about how you got that job, what your responsibilities were. Did you like it? Did you not like it? Yeah, so that was one of my first jobs after college. Because the journalism program was so practical, one of the main things that you're kind of left with and, and working towards for graduation is having all the materials you need to get a job. And the main goal of the program, if you were in broadcast, was to get you a job in local news. And that was just not something I was super interested in. Right, because you'd also probably have to go to like a small market somewhere else to start, right? Like even if you're coming from LA and have experience, you might start in a small town in Nebraska, you know, something that's not quite as big city. And then also the content is just different. And I had recognized that I didn't necessarily want to do hard news mm -hmm. at this point because, you yep. know, I had different internships and I realized, you know what, I kind of want a job that leaves me feeling inspired and happy at the end of the day as, you know, fulfilling as it is to like tell a hard news story or like find the truth out. If you're doing investigative journalism, I realized I wanted something a little bit lighter that I could, you know, feel good about at the end of the day because we spend so much time in our jobs. Right. So I basically did not take the route that the program kind of pushed me towards. <laughs> so I became the master of being an independent contractor. And I decided for this time after college, I'm just going to try to have as many opportunities in the production and entertainment and media worlds that I could possibly have. And again, just try to learn as much as I could and help determine where I eventually wanted to wind up. So I did a lot of like, TV shows as a PA or live events as a PA. And I think I was working the Music Cares show, which is the Grammys fundraiser. Yeah. But, you know, when you're doing production, you wind up networking with a lot of people. You get people jobs. They get you jobs. And someone I was working with said, hey, um, I'm working the Golden Globes later this year. Uh, my bosses are looking for someone. Are you interested? And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes. Because Duh. in the back of my mind, I thought, well, you know, I have this journalism degree. Maybe I do want to get into entertainment, potentially on camera. But, oh, gosh, you need so much experience in L.A. to get an entertainment on your job. So, again, I'm just going to learn as much as possible and really learn behind the scenes of an award show. So I showed up open-minded, 
my bosses knew that I wanted to learn more about media. So after I worked for them on several events, they made me the media coordinator, which essentially meant I was the point person for all of the big entertainment news outlets or networks. So I worked with the CNN person, the E! Entertainment person, the Access Hollywood person, all these people uh, from outlets who were doing big live streams for broadcast, so for TV, from the red carpet, the Golden Globes, or other major events. So really got to see a lot behind the scenes, like you uh, were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Things aren't always glamorous and glitzy. And one of my main takeaways that I still think about that I'm so appreciative that my bosses from that uh, job taught me was that everything's customer service. I'd meet hundreds of people coming in to get their credentials. Everyone has a different personality. Everyone was having a different day, production stressful. And they just said, you know, nothing's ever wrong. You're always going to find a solution. If someone has an issue and you don't know the answer, you walk them over to someone who has it. And I know that sounds so simple, but when you're when you don't have job experience and you haven't interacted with hundreds of people, it was just such a quick download of the real world and just always be effective, be helpful. And be kind because you don't know what kind of day someone's having. That is a fact. So <laughs> of all of the bigger events that you worked on, was there any behind the scene moments that were particularly memorable for you? Working for that company, I think it was just really cool because we were working high security events. And I, from day one, had all access. My RFID chip allowed me into every single room backstage, red carpet, like wherever you wanted to go, I could go. So I saw a lot of cool things that, you know, might never be spoken of that happened behind the scenes. And I remember like one of the shows we would do is Victoria's Secret Fashion Show. We would fly wherever it was happening, Europe, New York, Florida. And I remember one time getting on an elevator and it was right when dress rehearsal wrapped. And someone said, hold the elevator. And all of the models get on the elevator with me. And I'm not even a short person. I'm a pretty tall human being. But they were all in these giant heels. And I just, I'm thinking, oh, this is so funny. Like, they're really quite tall. Amazing. Okay. So you were working other jobs during this time too, right? I'm just curious about how you were making all of this work financially because, you know, like that practical piece of it, I think is something that's important for our audience to hear, for women to discuss, for people to discuss. 100%. That's why I chose to do the independent contractor route because ultimately I would have control of my schedule and I would have control of the jobs that I would take or not take. And it's really difficult when you're starting out down that path because you don't necessarily have a network and you don't know who is hiring. But it really forced me into that quote unquote hustler mindset because if you didn't get out there and ask questions or, you know, help other people, no one's going to help you find a job either. So it was just really early on that I realized, okay, like, if I want this career where currently I'm able to take jobs that I want and just freelance, I have to hustle and I have to outreach proactively. Jobs aren't just going to come to you. And that really helped long term for, you know, becoming an entrepreneur and launching a business. And I think that's such an important skill set to learn, even if you're not planning on being an entrepreneur, because I know it was something I struggled with in the beginning of my career, even when I was, you know, applying for jobs about, you know, raising your hand, going after something, knowing someone's going to say no to you. I just didn't have that much experience with rejection or with someone just not responding or even I didn't have that much experience of like going after something really. So I think like mm -hmm. the sooner that you can do that and not be afraid of someone saying no to you or not hearing back and like yeah. realizing it's not such a big deal to put yourself out there, that that is really, really helpful. I agree with you so much. I actually grew up in Chicago acting, doing theater and like Second City Improv and all of that Great. beforehand. So Great I training. I mean, it's great for learning that rejection is a totally normal thing. And just like, I remember I'd go to an audition and my mom would just say, have fun. Bonus if you book it, but just go have totally. fun. So that was the mindset that she set me up with early on. And it's been incredibly helpful because you just realize in real life, like you're going to get 
about a million no's before you get one yes. And you can't let it affect your mindset. You have to keep going. You have to keep trying. And it will work out. Totally. And guess what? If it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You then know you tried and you don't have to regret that you didn't thinking, oh, what if I had done this? What if I had done that? That's really what you should fear. Very true. Okay. So you're working a million jobs. Yes. You are an independent contractor. You're supporting yourself. You're moving along in your career. But you're also a host and producer for E! Entertainment, for Disney, for People Magazine, for a bunch of outlets. How did the hosting producing thing come into your life? Do you remember the first story that you worked on? And how was this fitting in with everything else you were doing? Total madness. (laughs) So... I had the journalism degree. I knew I wanted to do something with it. I started doing a lot of projects in entertainment, media, production. But then I started realizing, oh, maybe I do want to do this on-air thing. Digital was very nascent. There really was not video content. But none of the big guys were really looking at digital content at the time. So if you were as a newbie, Um, wanting to get into on-air interviews or anything in that realm, it was the perfect time because the jobs were not paying very much. (laughs) The opportunities were there if you could potentially produce, write, host, basically do it all, which I'd been trained to at USC. So one of my first jobs on camera came from a contact that I made in working in credentials. My contact at E! Entertainment, I happened to throw out there, you know, maybe like the third year we were working together or something. I said, you know what? I have this journalism degree. I've been a member of Screen Actors Guild since I was nine. I really would like to understand how I could eventually, you know, work at an E or work at an Access or whatever. Because at the time, goals change. That was kind of where I wanted to be. And he, because we had worked together, he was like, no problem, Dana. I'll put you in contact with our casting director. I'm sure she'll be happy to, you know, talk to you for an hour or something and give you some pointers. And he did. She was so kind and thoughtful, invited me into the studio to talk for an hour. I asked a lot of questions. She gave a lot of advice. You know, I followed up on the things she had said, you know, do X, Y, and Z, did them. And she actually called me in for an audition. And I went to a few and I went to producers on some of these things. And I wound up becoming a fill-in host, just a fill-in host, not their main host or anything, for their digital program. So I was just like over the moon, of course, because this is a job that traditionally was broadcast. It was on TV. And you would have to be working for years and have a ton of experience to get there. But because they were launching this digital series, and at the time I just started working on other little programs, I got the job and I got to fill in. And... It was super exciting. And I remember one time I was working, I was the only host in the studio that night. And Jay-Z and Beyonce decided to get married. And so that was my shot. I got on TV on E! Entertainment because I was the only host in. That's amazing. And they, you know, they immediately called in, you know, all the hosts that you know and associate with E! Entertainment at the time. But, you know, while they were getting called in, getting hair and makeup, there I was in the newsroom reporting on breaking news. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, But again, like the digital media world industry was so new that while I was being this fill-in host at E! Entertainment, which is incredible and noteworthy and people know what it is, I was also looking on Craigslist, being proactive, trying to find gigs where I could build my craft and practice and make sure that I was a killer teleprompter reader, but also could just on the fly interview people on the red carpet who I had no clue who they were or prepare sit-down interviews that were, you know, very researched and thoughtful in the questions and, you know, be able to think on the fly while I'm shooting something, well, how am I going to produce that? Oh, got to cut this out. We need to shorten this. The format of this show or this segment is going to be this. And it was just such a wonderful training time. And to, again, have the diversity of different outlets that you're working with that are all over the spectrum and learning something from each and every one of them. And being able to problem solve on your feet that quickly, I don't think people realize how valuable that is. 
Yeah. And it takes time, you know, you realize, oh, I shouldn't have said that or I should have rephrased that. You learn, but because you're, you know, you're doing so many interviews over a very short period of time, you learn quickly. Right, right. It's that Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours happens pretty quickly. Yes. <laughs> so let's talk about Clever Media. How did you join that founding team? You were brought on board to launch video content, right? Correct, correct. So again, very beginning of digital media. Clever.com, you know, the two founders of that site, they basically had a lot of content, free content that people would watch, trailers, video game previews, music videos, all of the content that studios would release for promotional purposes. And they were looking for a way to get people to the website. YouTube was this young platform. A lot of people were watching it. The content was not premium at the time. And they hired myself and one other person who has become one of my closest friends, Jocelyn Davis, who is still in the content creation space. They hired us both to basically write, produce, host, right when YouTube launched its partnership program. So that was the beginning of monetization at YouTube. Man. So we launched this content. And I think the cool thing about digital content is you get feedback, you get data almost immediately. So we were just every day reviewing the content that we were putting out. We started very wide as far as entertainment news is considered. And we recognized pretty quickly that the type of content that resonated with the YouTube audience was anything that was in the realm of tween, teen, young adult. Because hmm. No content out there was really speaking to them because if you looked at the main entertainment shows, they were covering, you know, the George Clooney's of the world. But no one was talking to them at the time about Justin Bieber and Selena Gomez and Miley Cyrus and Jonas Brothers. So we really owned that content. And as soon as we saw a certain type of content was resonating with the audience, we'd think, hey, what else can we make that, you know, takes advantage of the fact that people want more content about this actor, this musician, etc. And we were also thinking about evergreen content because you don't necessarily just want to do content that you create today and then has no, no tail. So we were trying to find a balance between being, you know, breaking news outlet and being the first to report on exciting news in this world, but also creating a video library that would continue to make money for us and allow us to become a real business. So were you working there full time at this point? Did you still have all of your other jobs? And then what was sort of the inflection point to make you decide to focus on it? Yeah. So the early days definitely still had other jobs, but I think there's a certain point at which you recognize, okay, I need to start prioritizing the things that are going to move me in the right direction. You know, at first it's great, like be a funnel, take in all the opportunities that your schedule and time can handle, but you do need to start paring down and focusing on the things that will get you where you want to be. So at the time, I really wanted to be a great producer and be a great on-air interviewer. So, you know, if it came down to deciding between two jobs, I would choose the one that you know, it was more aligned with where I wanted to be. So slowly the production jobs kind of went away mm -hmm. and slowly more on camera jobs happened. But there was a point at which it was a very small team with Clever. We had been shooting in a garage and we were starting to grow. We realized when we had celebrities, we couldn't invite them to the garage for an interview. So we started renting a studio. Shortly after renting the studio, we were seeing a lot of growth and recognized we should really get an actual studio where we're working full time and, and really just invest in building this business. So we did that shortly after. And that was the inflection point where it was like, okay, so guys, we're all doing this. Made the, made the jump and just decided, okay, we're focusing 100% on this little startup and we're going to be the best digital entertainment news network this world has seen. <laughs> I love that. And then things started moving pretty quickly. So in June of 2012, Clever was acquired by Alloy Media. 
In October 2013, it merged with Break Media to form Defy Media. I think this is really indicative of like how the industry was at that exact moment. Like there were lots of mergers, lots of acquisitions. What did that mean for you personally and for the company sort of as a whole? Mm -hmm. Did it change your role a lot? Did you like being part of something bigger? Because the startup mentality and then sort of post-acquisition mentality are are different. Yes, it definitely was different. It was a little odd at first to go from – we are our own bosses to, oh, wow, there's a board and uh, we have bosses and we need to listen to other people's creative vision. And so I was able to grow with the company, which was exciting to me. I started leading branded content, which I just wanted to keep learning. At a certain point, you're like, oh my gosh, I've written and produced so many videos and I've done like a million red carpets and set visits and You know, you've tried so many things and it's so much fun, but you're like, oh, well, what can I learn next? And um, so I got to take on branded content and that was a really big learning moment for me. It was super fascinating to work directly, you know, with the Johnson and Johnsons of the world and essentially be the client facing person who's producing, managing, um, in charge of production. And it wound up helping me again later because I launched a brand and, and all of that. So it was a pretty crazy time in the digital content creation space. Yeah. You were also managing a ton of people. You had 25 hosts, writers, content managers, editors. I mean, building a team is also a very different skill set than being sort of a one-woman, 360, do-it-all person. So I'm curious about how you evolved into a manager Was that a difficult transition for you? Did you like it? And how you learned to build a team? Because I personally still find the management piece of it to be the most challenging. I'm totally the same way. It was certainly a challenge, especially because those early days, we were all kind of the same age. Yeah. I enjoyed when we would hire someone new and maybe they weren't as familiar with digital content creation, but obviously they had really killer skills and something related. So it would be fun to kind of teach them like, oh, this is how we do it. And this is why we do it. But yeah, it was it was certainly a challenge. And we grew pretty quickly. And one of the great things when we were acquired and, and then had a merger, suddenly there was a little bit more of an infrastructure built in. So it was kind of more of a team effort at a certain point where it wasn't just Dana, if you don't do this, we're not going to grow. Yeah. So I agree with you. It's not necessarily my favorite, but if you're launching something, you're building something, it's just an essential part. Yep. So in researching this, I realized that you have written, produced, and or hosted more than 7,500 segments that represent over 3 billion views. What would you say have been some of the biggest standout moments? Can you even quantify that at that point? Because, I mean, that's so many segments. That's so much work. That's absolutely bananas. Even hearing you say that now, because I've been out of the content creation space for a while, it is mind-boggling. Truly. But I remember being in it. And early days, part of our strategy was to build out that video library. And part of that was having a lot of content. So there were days where I would write, produce, host, and QC 25 segments, like in a single day. Whoa. Yeah. What's QC? Oh, quality control. So even Ah. after everything's written, produced, hosted, an editor works on it, and then someone has to make sure every, like the graphics show up properly, the B-roll, all that stuff. So, but there was so, there were so many fun opportunities that we got because we were one of the early adopters of digital content. Like I remember there was this one time that we worked a lot with Lionsgate as a studio and they were launching this new movie that was really targeting teens and young adults. And they said, hey, we want you to be our official host of the live stream. And so here we are, a group of 20-year-olds doing all the technical setup for this live stream. (laughs) But like, what a cool opportunity. You know, we were doing things like that. And then um, interviewing Oprah. 
I mean, when I got a one-on-one with her, when we were the official digital sponsor of the Critics' Choice Movie Awards, I interviewed her and I thought, I feel like this has come full circle. Totally. I feel like I achieved some really cool things in this career and I feel good about letting it go for the next career move. (laughs) Speaking of which, let's talk about that next career move. So I read that it was during your time at Clever, spending all of those long hours on the red carpet in Hollywood that you came up with an idea for a product that was for a personal need for your own comfort, which would become pre-heels, which is your blister prevention spray. So what was your aha moment of like, I think I can actually make this or I want to actually make this because the leap from I wish there was this thing to I'm going to make this thing is tremendously huge. It was so huge. And honestly, this is where that saying, ignorance is bliss. Uh, But the fact that I didn't know yet how difficult and challenging it would be to create a product that does not yet exist, I wouldn't be here if I had that knowledge. So, (laughs) yes, I was working on the red carpets and in the studios. When I was on red carpets, you know, you'd be wearing these crazy heels or uncomfortable shoes that didn't fit quite right. You'd get insane blisters from being on your feet all day. And I did research, thought I could find a solution, tried some things, nothing really worked, and just basically had this idea, hey, let's create something new. And I had a partner at the time who he had lived in New York for many years and saw women struggle with this same exact problem. And so together we were like, should we do this? Should we try to create this? And we just kind of jumped in and, you know, thought it would take six months. It took a few years and several hundred formulations. I mean, to be fair, most formulations don't take several years and several hundred formulations unless you're doing something innovative. So it took a while. So how did you even figure out like what kind of formula you wanted or who to work with on that? Um, Because I just feel like that piece of it has to be so tricky And then once you figured out the product, how did it turn into a viral sensation? Well, Google is your best friend. Uh It was my best friend at the time. Um, I mean, I think there's two things that you think about when you're coming up with a formulation. First, you have to do a lot of research regarding the ingredients, what you want it to look like, smell like, feel like. What do you want the delivery mechanism to be, a.k.a. is it a spray? Is it a a cream? Is it a balm? You know, all of these things, you just have to think about what this perfect product would be. And you have to be prepared to completely do a 180 and change what you thought you wanted after you start formulating. So you kind of come up with what you want the formulation to be. And then second fold, you really need to just find a chemist who is a consultant or find a lab. And you want to look for a person or lab who really specializes in what you're looking to create. Now with pre-heels, again, it was very innovative. So it wasn't like I knew to go look for someone who specializes in aerosols at the time. There's a ton of back and forth. And it's just, you're a guinea pig. You're testing, you're testing, you're testing. And finally, when you're getting a little close to what you want this formulation to be, then you can start getting a little bit more specific with like tinkering. Hey, I know that this ingredient makes it dry really fast, but it also can create a very hard texture. We want it to be softer so it really can move with your foot as your foot flexes and moves so it doesn't crack. Little things like that. But when we are finally close was when I recognized, okay, maybe it's time that I leave my job at Clever and it's time to really focus on this new brand, this new product launch, this new startup. And I think we were really lucky because when we launched, we really spoke to a problem that a lot of us have. So I think that's why there was so much engagement and interest early on. And I really knew that We had something there when Facebook reached out and they said, hey, would you mind if we do a case study on your brand? I know. I was like, what? Facebook? (laughs) Okay, cool. Interesting. So how were you funding it in those early days? And then once you decided to walk away from your full-time job, 
Did you have savings? Like, did you have a plan for that? Because that's a big jump. I mean, obviously you knew you could make money, you had the hustle, all of that stuff, like if something didn't work out. But I'm wondering where your head was at at that moment. Yes. So we were formulating on the side of full-time jobs. So I was still working at Clever and formulating nights and weekends. And, you know, that's not a full-time job. You give feedback and then you wait for the next formulation to arrive at your door. That was easily something that I could do on the side of my full-time job. When I finally made the leap, it was at a point when the company really did require full-time work. I would not have done it earlier because I knew that we were self-funded at that time. So I couldn't necessarily afford to pay myself money. We did launch a Kickstarter. That was an early thing that we did, which we put the money towards our first manufacturing run, which was really great because we had built-in customers right when we launched. Yep. We launched our website, launched Amazon, and you know quickly went into the digital marketing realm of things just to get the word out. We got an early fan higher up at a major boutique retailer who loved the product and reached out and said, hey, can you send this to our buyer? I really want us to carry it. And that led to our first big retail distributor, which was so cool (laughs) because that was just validating, you know, like you work so hard on an idea yeah, and you're working in this silo and then suddenly one day the product's ready and you're like, oh, I want to tell everyone, but... Do you guys like it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I felt very lucky that we did have a pretty early engaged customer base. We did raise money, friends, family, angel investors, celebrity investors, which allowed us to build out a little bit of a team. But we did not build out the team until we had the idea for the full collection, the rebrand, Barefoot Scientist, totally new brand or company, new website. And 10 daily care products plus seven tools. That's what we launched with. So each of those formulations was something that I personally worked on to make custom. A lot of research went into each one in order to be innovative, even if it was a common product like a foot cream. What's our point of differentiation? All new packaging. I mean, there's so much to do when you're building a brand. And I thought I had learned so much with just the one product. And then when we launched the full brand, I was like, wow. Here's a new learning lesson, people. (laughs) So how much time elapsed between that first product and then the full Barefoot Scientist brand? We took about a year and a half to create the full collection and and basically relaunch the whole brand. Got it. But we were still running pre-heels as a one SKU product and maximizing our distribution through that one product. But you learn really early on with e-com, it's not really beneficial as a company to only have one product. Yeah. You know, you're paying to get eyeballs on your website and then you pay for shipping and handling. And, you know, it's just, it gets very expensive. So, you know, we realized pretty early on, like, oh, we kind of need more, but also, wow, look at this foot care space. There is a huge white space here. Nobody is thinking about their feet proactively and preventatively. All of the products that are out there for feet are very much, you buy them when you have a problem. I recognized there was a great opportunity to introduce something new to the beauty space and make foot care more in the realm of beauty and wellness. Well, yeah, because a lot of it was kind of like, I don't want to say like embarrassing, but there was definitely nothing elevated. There was definitely nothing chic. It was, to your point, like only problems. So you're like, I don't even, you know, it's nothing that you would feel proud of buying or sharing. Very unlike my own personal experience (laughs) with one of your products, which I could not have shared more. Dana and I actually started talking over DM because I became a huge fan of one of your products, which is, for anyone who doesn't know, it's like a super affordable foot treatment that resurfaces your calluses. I had some of the grossest before and after pictures ever, which I still can't believe I just shared, but people were freaking out. (laughs) I mean, but that's the goal. I want people to share about their feet. Let's talk about feet. I mean, it was such a dramatic difference. And then I like took people on the journey with me because it's a two-week process. 
Because it's alpha hydroxy acids are basically you're soaking your feet in them and fruit extracts and slowly your skin kind of sheds off. It sloughs off. I call it a foot facial. Yes. So at the end of the process, they're beautiful, but it is a process. It is. And it was like there's peeling and there was like and then it's just like eating away all of the gross dead skin. Anyway, I kept sharing all of this and I have never felt that way about a product because it's so affordable and it was so efficacious and I just loved it. So I was wondering, like, did you realize that you were making such a big difference in people's lives? Because I know it sounds maybe a little silly on the surface, but it really solved a problem I didn't know how to fix. And I am knowledgeable in this space. Just hearing you say that again, even though I know that you're a fan of the product, because I see you post and as a brand owner, I'm so incredibly appreciative. (laughs) But even hearing you say that now, like I am moved by it, like I appreciate it because I think the thing that people don't necessarily think about is that so much time and effort goes into creating every product that there's so much emotion tied up to it. So when you do hear from a customer who, you know, says this was life-changing, like with our Twinkle Toes deodorizing purification spray, if you yourself or have kids that have smelly feet and they're embarrassed and have been made fun of for it, and then you find them a solution, like I get emails from moms who are like, my son can now like go and play basketball. He's not embarrassed. Or my daughter, you know, like I am moved. So I'm still appreciative. And I think I will always be appreciative of those emails and messages that come in. Well, I just like the fact, too, that for a company to launch with one product and then to expand, but to have continued, repeated success on product after product, that is a very rare story. It's clear to me that you put such crazy effort into making, to your point, innovative, but really thoughtful products that actually work instead of just like hopping on a trend or doing a thing or like, oh, we should make something just to make something. That's not what you're doing. That's really thoughtful for you to say. Thank you. For me, when I was formulating everything, I started from a point of just saying it always started with, I want my products to be safe and efficacious. And then the third thing was innovative. From a marketing perspective, you need to have something that's in some way innovative, in my opinion, in order to catch the attention of a human out there. They're also cute. Like that's the other piece of it too. Like the packaging is so great. The branding is so great. It doesn't feel medicinal in a negative way, which is nice. (laughs) I don't know if you know this because I think you learned about my brand after I did a new packaging run, but we actually had different packaging Ah. and we had a really big retail launch. And when I went to see the product, you know, on the shelf, I thought, oh my gosh, we're missing such a great opportunity. It was more minimalist, the packaging. Mm. And I realized we took so much care and effort to educate consumers on our website but in a store, you don't have that website to, to supplement the information. So I realized very quickly after we launched, oh my goodness, we need to maximize the value of our packaging, especially if we're considering launching in more doors in store. We want to make sure we're good to go. So that was a whole project, you know, redoing all of the packaging, which also, by the way, From an operational standpoint, then you have to think about, oh, I have all of this inventory. Where am I going to push the older packaging versus the new packaging? You just learn so much every day when you you launch a a startup. It's really fascinating. Oftentimes, I think that founders and entrepreneurs can get stuck in this, like, no, this is what it is. And they're not great about saying, like, this isn't working. Let's move forward or let's tweak this thing. And clearly, like, you feel very comfortable with iterating. And that's great. I think that goes back to the media background because there are thousands of videos of me on the internet showing me growing up in my (laughs) 20s. (laughs) You just let go. So let's talk about your latest product, the Dream State Magnesium Sleep Spray, which was just on the Today Show. 
sales exploded. It sold out of your Amazon inventory. You became the number one bestseller as a spray product and for a small business launch. How do you think about new formulations, newness in general, and the future? Well, Dream State was very special to me. I created that because I needed it, which a lot of my products, Mm -hmm. that was pre-heels blister prevention spray, clean slate textured cleansing towelettes. I created those because sometimes you get in bed at night and you're like, my feet are kind of gross from being out and about, but like I don't need the full (laughs) shower and I'm lazy and tired. So I'm just going to use this quick cleansing towelette on my feet. Dream State Magnesium Sleep Spray was another one of those. During the pandemic, I was not sleeping. And I did a lot of research regarding how I could improve my sleeping. And magnesium, most people are deficient in. And magnesium is an essential mineral for calming your nervous system, which is essential for sleep. So in my research, I realized, oh, I can take it orally, in which case you want magnesium glycinate. You can put it on topically, in which case you want magnesium chloride. And I realized, oh my goodness, the feet have the most concentrated amount of sweat glands on the soles. So that means you push out sweat, but it's also a great opportunity to absorb ingredients and minerals. So I created Dream State to be a magnesium spray that you spray on your feet before bed. Again, point of differentiation, I wanted super concentrated magnesium, so you're getting the full amount that you need. I chose the purest form, which is from the Zextine C. I added ashwagandha, which is just really great for calming. Also, a lot of times topical magnesium causes itchiness. So I added in Alentuan, which is really good for calming and soothing the skin. And we launched earlier this year, and you just never know when a product is going to take off. But someone from the Today Show had been using the product. And a few days before the segment went live, she contacted me and said, hey, I love this product. Can you just send some to the prop department? I want to include it in a segment I'm doing. So it happened totally organically. And again, as a brand owner, it's just so, so validating to just wake up and see the internet exploding with sales on a product one day because it just resonated with people. That was really, really cool. Understandably so. So one of the things we like to talk about on this podcast is mistakes because everyone makes them, but we tend to just sort of bounce from highlight to highlight, whether it's in interviews or on Instagram, and that's not totally real because, as I said, we make mistakes. So I'm wondering if you can tell me about a mistake that you've made in your career at some point and what you've learned from it. Okay. I think... We all make mistakes all of the time, and I've just reframed how I think about mistakes because (laughs) they're totally normal, and every mistake you make, you can learn something from it. I mean, there's so much you can take away from it. That being said, I think one of the things I can share that's potentially a tip if someone's getting into the CPG space or if you're in a business where you you hire vendors, I always get three quotes because It's likely that the quotes are all in the same range, but if there's one that's like crazy high and you had just gone with that one, you're wasting money potentially. Or if someone's super low, it's a great opportunity to find out why they're super low. Maybe you're not getting a service that you actually need or expected to get with that vendor. So I always get three quotes. Like I said, I mean, I think as an entrepreneur, you make a lot of mistakes and you just learn from them. And you can't get bogged down by the mistakes. You just need to like learn and move on. There's no time. And I think generally we just need to normalize that. Be a shark. Just move through it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are in their first life. They want to do something different, whether it's in their industry or to make a big pivot like you did, but they're scared or they just haven't mustered the courage to actually make that move. What advice would you give someone who knows they want to do something else, but just hasn't done it quite yet? Okay, do the research, get on Google. Like I said, it's your best friend. Make sure you're aware of any potential competition out there. Make sure you're good to go on whatever you're creating. You just need to be the expert of whatever you're thinking you want to do. I think the research part is really important because you'll feel empowered, you know, feel like you can make better decisions and move forward and hopefully make this career change. Oh, I think another thing is 
see what you can do on the side of your full-time job. So while you're getting paid full-time, like don't do this while you're in work hours at your full-time job. Like don't jeopardize your job. We all have time to be smart before work, lunch breaks, after work, weekends. So find those moments where you can work on whatever this project is or this new career is while you're making money with your current career. If there's an opportunity to potentially transition onto a part-time role at your current career, consider it. Um, Just know that if you're going to your boss and talking about it, they might take that as a red flag that you're ready to move on. So just make sure you either have that relationship where you can openly discuss that or be prepared that this might be the end of the line with that job. And just do it. I think the thing that holds so many of us back is just the fear of failure. Well, it's a strong possibility that it might not work out, or at least it might not work out in the way that you see it all playing out. It might be a different version that's totally successful, but you're never going to know unless you try. So be strategic in when you try, but if it's a good idea and you really believe in it and you've done the research and you know it can work, you're going to kick yourself if you don't. You just gotta. You only get one life. It's not a dress rehearsal. 100% true. So my last question is my favorite question, which is if you could go back in time and speak with your younger self and give her a little advice at any point in her career, what would you say to younger you? I think I would tell my younger self to trust her instincts. You know, now having all of this work experience behind me and still continuing to learn. I feel more confident when I have that gut moment where I'm like, I think I should do this or I should not do that. I'm more confident in that feeling. Early on, I don't think that I was necessarily confident in it. And I think a lot of people agree with that because you do hear people say a lot, hey, just trust your instincts. So I think I'm just bringing that back. I appreciate that because it's very true. And I think to some extent, there's a reason for not trusting your instincts is because you don't want to have unearned confidence, right? Brilliant. Because that will get you in trouble. But at the same time, for me anyway, not to frame it in terms of sex or gender, but for me, there was always this fear of it's a feeling that's a girly thing, that's a feminine thing, that's not a serious business thing. And so if I don't have proof that something won't work, I should just try it. And that's not necessarily true either. It's like if there's a voice telling you something, like that's a superpower. That's not something you should ignore. Yeah. Well, and also it's all of your experience and things that you've learned that you might not have even thought was a lesson coming together and working together to get you to that instinct. So there is data behind that gut feeling and you just got to trust it. I love that. Well, Dana, this was such a pleasure. Congratulations on building such an incredible company. I just think what you're doing is so great. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for making the time for us today. Oh, thank you so much. That was the founder and president of Barefoot Scientist, Dana Ward. For more inspiring interviews with women like Dana, head on over to secondlifepod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you like today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us. We love seeing you spread the word on social. And now you can tag us in your posts. We are at Second Life Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We always want to know who you're interested in hearing from on the show. So send in your requests to hello at secondlifepod.com or you can DM us on Instagram. I'm at Hillary Kerr. The show is at Second Life Pod. Our DMs are always open. I'm Hillary Kerr and you've been listening to Second Life.